Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Did you hear that? Because your steadfast love is better than being alive, my lips will praise you. Now, that's Psalm 63, first three verses. And the reason I start with that is as a kind of completion of Psalm 96, I have a feeling that one of the questions asked last night is how do you get a church razzed up for for missions? And my answer was, you don't. You get them razzed up for God and missions follows. And, And you hear those two Psalms, Psalm 96, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. I mean, that's a task. But you're not going to do that if you're not, oh God, you are my God. Your steadfast love is better than life. So my prayer, as I was praying for you this morning, my prayer is that as we sit here, you would experience a sweet sense, he's my God. He's my Savior. I have a God who loves me. I have a Savior who died for me. My sins are forgiven. My guilt is gone. Heaven is in front of me. Hell is over. Judgment is past. There's only good coming toward me. Even if it's hard, it's good. It's just a sweet sense, not a sense of, oh, you have stuff to learn. Oh, there's burdens to bear. Oh, there's tasks to do. Uh, the Christian life is, is, a, is a sweet, steady communion with the living God undergirding all the tasks in the world. It's not about tasks mainly. It's about knowing him, loving him, resting in him. So I want to read you. I think missionaries, and by that I, maybe I should just generalize and say people who are pouring themselves out in more or less hard situations for others that they might know God. That could be right here. Um, Those people meet God at the deepest levels. And John Patton is one of the favorite biographies I've ever done. And let me read you this. So John Patton, Peyton, however you're supposed to pronounce it, it depends on where you're from. Um, Scottish, you know, 150 years ago, went to the New Hebrides, which wasn't called New Hebrides. And, well, yes, it wasn't. It was called Vanuatu, I think. But, um, and, he, and he ministered, lost his wife, first wife, and almost went insane at her grave and ministered among cannibals who had eaten the first two Scottish ministries. Minister, uh, missionaries who went there, and uh, it didn't go well on Tana for the first four years, and he was driven out, and this is what he wrote um, about inserting himself between warring factions on the tribe and risking his life over and over again. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power 
of my dear Lord and Savior. Nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. In his words, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt his supporting power. It is the sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly 20 years later, that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smiles of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket club or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing him who is invisible. Now, I've never stared down a musket, but I've had a few hard times, and I just know this is true, and you do too. Nobody has ever said, I learned more of Jesus on the brightest, easiest, sunny days. Nobody has ever said that. At least I've never heard anybody say it, and I've never said it. The steady testimony of human nature is when times are hard, God gets real, or doesn't, and he gets sweetly real. And that's what he's saying. I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smiles of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. So I just want to balance last night's, you know, praising psalm of uh, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O peoples of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. I mean, that, that just sounds, you're just kind of soaring in your missionary task at that moment. And behind that are dread moments where God either gets very sweet and dear and precious to you or, or he doesn't. And if, if that foundation isn't there, this won't last. You won't, you'll, you'll be fired up for six weeks after a missions conference, and then, and then you'll be just back to your ordinary self, unless you know him like that. So let's pray that God would, would do that all along the way. Father, I ask that underneath all the missionary strategy talk and definition talk and theology talk and task talk and mobilization talk, which can all sound very frenzied at times, there would be a quiet, deep, unshakable, right in this room, right now, experience of your fellowship. Your words to us, I love you. You're mine. I chose you. I sent my son for you. I'll be with you. Nothing will befall you but by my decree. I have your back. Don't worry. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll write this book again. 
Operation World. So I got it out this morning again, it's lying on the floor beside my little stool. And uh, we're spending five days on Russia here at October 12 through 16. And uh, a, a secondary reason for having this book and dipping into it daily is education. The first is supplication. That's what this is for. You know, pray for Russian peoples today. But secondarily is, you know what? You don't know much about Russia. I mean, I mean the new Russia, the new former Soviet Socialist Republic. The Russia I knew when I was growing up is not the Russia of today. There's a whole new reality out there of new, new countries and new whatever they call them. And, and here's a section called Geo-Ethnic Regions of the Russian Federation. Do you even know there was such a thing? I don't even know any of that language. What's a geo-ethnic region and what's a Russian federation? And then there's a big section on the Southern Federal District and the Northwestern Federal District, all the republics that are in there, and the Urals District, and the Siberian District, and the Eastern Federal District. And then we get to Rwanda in a few days. And on page 711, it says, there are 78 ethnic minorities considered unreached totaling over 13 million people in Russia. So that's, I mean, this is a lot of pages to pray through. You can't pray every single sentence in here. So this morning, I just, I just paused for a moment and prayed that God would do something about that to reach those 78 ethnic minorities, bring them to the attention of evangelicals in, in Argentina or you know, Mexico or... Just do amazing things, Lord, to awaken your church to this particular need. And then in a few days, it'll be a totally different need. You know, this one will go. And you know, what? if you believe in prayer, and there are these pictures in the Bible of, of this censer in front of God's throne where the smoke is going up and he's smelling it and he loves this smell, you know. And those are the prayers of the saints, the incense to God. And in, in uh, chapter Eight, he, he takes this sensor at one point, dumps it on the earth. So if you think you've ever prayed a prayer in vain, you didn't. It's just in the sensor still, pleasing God, and in due time, it will be dumped. Take the prayer, hallowed be thy name. That's been prayed, what, a billion times by people? Billions. Have they been answered? Oh, they will be answered. That will be the final answer. I mean, that's a big censor. You've got a billion prayers all giving off sweet incense to the Lord, gathering and getting bigger and bigger and bigger until the thing ignites and he just throws it on the earth and wraps it all up. And your little prayer in some midnight hour that God would hallow his name will be answered. It might be a thousand years from now, as far as I know, but it will not have been Wasted. You need to believe that God hears your prayer. So now, see if we can activate this fancy thing here again. Look at that, it's working. That's great. So here we are with. Uh, Question number three, 
Um, the, the question we're asking is, must a person hear the gospel in order to be saved? The first two questions were, um, is there anything that you need to be saved from that's eternal and terrible? I mean, hell. And I answered yes. And the second question was, is there another way to be saved besides the atoning work of Jesus, whether you hear about it or not? And I answered, no, there isn't. Only the work of Jesus can save us from the mess that was made of humanity by the fall of Adam because Jesus is the second Adam. And to be in him is to be in a new humanity that is covenant bound towards heaven and to be in the old humanity alone is to be perishing. And so Jesus is a universal remedy for Adam's fall. He's not a tribal remedy. There isn't an alternative remedy. We do have audacious claims as Christians. This is why you get in trouble trying to be a Christian, because Christians make audacious claims. They go around saying, Jesus is the only way. And the response you get is, who in the world do you think you are foisting your religion on me? And, and we just have to humbly say, I, I'm, not, I'm not foisting anything on you. Jesus is the only way. He came to me and he presented himself to me and he claims to be the way. And I'm just telling you what he said. Now the third question is, must a person hear the gospel in order to be saved? Um, and I'm going to develop an argument that says, yes, they must. And here's the reason this is a little more tricky than the others exegetically. Historically, that's not always been true. That is, nobody knew the name Jesus before he was incarnate. Nobody uh, had ever heard the message of the cross after it happened, before it happened. So in the Old Testament, the conscious locus of saving faith wasn't the same as it is after the cross. And my argument is that God intends that after the incarnation, Jesus be the conscious locus of all saving faith. Which means then that missions becomes imperative if that's true. If, if people can get saved without hearing about Jesus, then missions isn't quite as urgent. But if my argument is right, namely that you must hear about him to put your faith in him or you can't be saved means we got to go or be heartless. So that's, that's where we're going. So first step in the argument, the term uh, mystery of Christ right there. What is it? Ephesians 3. When you read this, Paul says in, in Ephesians 3, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Okay, something's new that wasn't known. As it has now been revealed, that's the point of the New Testament and the apostles' teaching, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, and here's the definition of the mystery. This mystery 
is that the Gentiles, the nations, are fellow heirs, members of the same body. He's talking about the Jewish covenant people. So we're grafted in to the Abrahamic covenant. Our fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So my first argument is all the nations out there now, we are told in a way nobody was told before, they are included in the covenant if they belong to Christ, and it happens through the gospel. And if they don't hear it, it doesn't happen. All are accountable for what they know, not what they don't know. So here, if I'm getting interviewed on the radio or television, so you think everybody's lost and going to hell even though they didn't have a chance to hear Jesus, right? Is that what you believe? And I would go to this, this text and draw out this truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it's just saying that's what people do all over the world. For what can be known about God is plain to them. So they do know God. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, so at least those two things, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This is called general revelation. So nature, the world as we know it, human conscience and and the world around us speak concerning God's nature and power. So they are without excuse. That's really important, really important. For although they knew God, isn't that amazing? They knew God, they did not honor him. These are people who've never heard a, a a page of the Bible. They don't know anything from special revelation. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They did not give him thanks as the true God. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So my answer is nobody will be judged for not believing in Jesus who's never heard of Jesus. People will be judged only for what they know and have not lived up to. And everybody knows enough to be judged, and nobody lives up to it. That's my answer. So, no, I, I don't say people are condemned for not believing in a Jesus they've never heard of. Rather, people are condemned for not giving thanks or worshiping God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. What did they do? They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. So everybody's accountable for what they know, not what they don't know. 
Now this phrase, step number three in the argument. Times of ignorance. Uh, Leap in the middle here with this Acts 17 text. The times of ignorance. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So notice the shift. There There was this time. He calls it the times of ignorance when he was letting people go their own way. And now he's sending out a word to the world. Repent. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. So he's going to judge the world through Jesus Christ. These are not times of ignorance anymore. These are times of repentance, which means the church now as Jesus says in Matthew 24, is to go preach repentance to the whole world. It's just amazing what is committed to us as a church. We're now back up to Romans 2.12. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's another way of saying Romans 1, 18 to 21. If you've never heard the law, you will not perish because of disobeying what you never read. You will perish because of what you already know in your heart and have disobeyed. But all perish. There's only one salvation, and that's through Jesus, not through the law. Now, here's 1 Corinthians one twenty one. Now, since the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That's remarkable. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So notice the difference. There was a, um, in, in God's wisdom, he ordained that the world not know God through human wisdom. So philosophy, Socrates couldn't think his way into salvation. Aristotle couldn't get there. No Buddha can get there by human wisdom. And God chose it to be that way. In the wisdom of God, it is that way. So, since that's not happening, salvation is not coming that way, God, through the folly of what we preach, he saves those who believe. Which means we need to preach. How shall they believe if they don't hear and how shall they hear without a preacher and how shall they preach unless they're sent in this new era that are not times of ignorance anymore we are called to preach the gospel so that people can be saved so here's the here's the key text everyone this is Romans 10 everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved so That's a wonderful promise. You should take real heart from that. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call upon him whom they haven't believed? So here's, watch the chain. (coughs) And how are they to believe in in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone Preaching, 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all heard the gospel, but have they have not all heard the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes by hearing. That's one of the most fundamental statements in the Bible. And hearing through the word of Christ, which does not emerge in the stars. It emerges through the mouth of preachers, missionaries. So I regard this text right here as, as profoundly basic to answering the question of do you have to hear in order to be saved? So Charles Hodge, conclusion. The solemn question implied in the language of the apostle in Romans 10, how can they believe without a preacher should sound day and night in the ears of the churches. It is our remarkable privilege to be caught up in the greatest movement in history, the ingathering of the elect from all the tribes, languages, and peoples of the nations until the full number of the Gentiles comes in and all Israel is saved and the Son of Man descends with power and great glory as King of kings and Lord of lords and the earth is full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Pause there for a question. Anything just busting to be asked about before we shift gears and move on. So my answer to question three, do, do the nations of the world, do these 78 unreached peoples in the Soviet, former Soviet Union need to be reached with a hearable, understandable articulation of Jesus died for you, he rose again. If you believe in him, he can forgive your sins, take away their wrath, give you eternal life. Do they need to hear that to be saved? And my answer is Yes. And you don't need a college degree or seminary degree to tell them either. And so, yes, is the answer to question three. Okay, well, you can ask. Oh, go ahead. Yep. Yep. Right. Were you here last night? I, I, I talked about that last night, but let me say again. So I think somebody, but it, it's good to ask because this is exactly the right place for it. Um, the question was, in, we hear stories of, of visions, dreams, where people are being led to Christ that way. And here's the distinction I made. And uh, I think it's important. A dream that leads you to the gospel by which you are saved is the way I see it in Acts 10 and 11, Cornelius' situation. Uh, Cornelius had a vision, and and the vision was, go down to Joppa. There's a man there. Tell him to come here and preach to you because you're going to get saved when you hear this message. I think that's glorious, you know, and God can do that anytime he wants and not break any of his rules. The other stories I hear, not as often, is inside a person's head, they heard the whole gospel. Somebody preached to them, some angel 
preached to them. They never heard. They never heard the Bible. They never heard Jesus. And, and the gospel preached in their head, and they get saved. I put a big question mark over that. I said, look, I can't call you a liar for telling me that. I just doubt it. <laughs> I just really doubt it uh, that that's happening. And if, if it is ever happening, which, I mean, God is God, it's not normative because it doesn't comport with Romans 10, 13 to 17. How shall they call on whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, at that point, they might say, God gives them a preacher in their head. And the next sentence is, and how shall they preach unless they're sent? And he means sent by human beings from churches so that they can go from God to them. I, I don't think the logic of that text allows for at least any normative sense. And so the practical implication is don't fall into a typical approach of praying for the non-normative. I just, you hear people start to pray, oh God, send dreams, send visions, get people saved where the gospel is not gone. That's just terrible praying. That is not biblical praying. Signs and wonders in Romans, um, in Acts 4, are prayed for. And you know how they work? Give signs and wonders while your servants preach the word of God with boldness as confirming signs for the, for the word of God. One more question before we move on. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's, that's a very right question to ask. They, the, the people were saved before Christ by hearing of the covenant God and the covenant promises and putting their faith in the true and living God and the promises he made of a sacrifice and a a Messiah, uh, an Isaiah 53 type person coming. So it's, it's very much the same in terms of you must have special revelation. God speaks to Abraham, and he reveals the true God with the true future coming through a true Messiah. And those outside, if they don't hear that, they're in the same situation as Romans 1. So they don't know Jesus by name. They don't know all that he's going to do. They don't know how, this, how the blood sacrifices of bulls and goats are pointing to something. They just know the blood of bulls and goats did not ultimately take away sin. They knew that, at least in their best moments they did, because David said so in Psalm 51, but they didn't know how. They were all pointing to something, and they, we know what they were pointing to, namely, namely Jesus. Okay, let me, you can, I'll, I'll keep stopping for questions, and uh, we'll try to keep moving here. here. Here we are now, what's behind the mission? God's ultimate purpose in creation and redemption what is it so we can join him in it? And the rest of this seminar is clustered around the three big chapters in the book, like the supremacy of God in missions through worship, the supremacy of God in missions through prayer, the supremacy of God in missions through suffering. So worship, prayer, and suffering is, is the outline for, for where we're going. So what is God's ultimate purpose? God's ultimate goal in creation and redemption is to uphold the display of his glory for 
and in, we'll talk about that, the enjoyment of his redeemed people from every tribe and language and nation. That is, God's ultimate goal is joyful worship, and worship becomes then the fuel and the goal of worship, of uh, missions. So here's biblical text to show God's zeal for his own glory. Now, I'm going to spend a good bit of time on this because even though for some of you it may be familiar, it may be that for some of you this is newer and it has been the most important thing in my in my discovery about God since I was age 21, um, namely that God is passionate concerning his glory and does everything for his glory. So we're going to tick through texts pretty quick. I've got 30 of them. I don't think we'll look at all of them. We'll see how much time we'll take on this. This is the most dense, God-centered three verses in the Bible, as far as I know. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So, one, two, three, four, at least five times, for my sake I restrain my anger for you. Now, that way of talking is shocking, was to me, at the beginning, that God does these things for his own namesake. And that's exactly what we find through the entire Bible. So he chose his people for his glory. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world and just drop down here to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's where all of this is going. He is aiming at the praise of his glorious grace. He created us for that, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I created for my glory. That's why you exist. He called Israel for his glory. You are my servant in whom I will be glorified. I made this people for me a a name and a praise, and a glory. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. He saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. So he brought them out of Egypt for his own namesake that he might make known his mighty power. He raised up Pharaoh to show his power and glorify his name. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his glory. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots. So all those events surrounding this most famous of all events in, in uh, Egypt was about God getting glory for his great name. God spared disobedient Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. They didn't walk in my statutes, and I said I would pour out my wrath upon them. But I acted for the sake of my name that, I should not, that it should not be profane. So I didn't punish them when they deserved to be punished, and I didn't do it for the sake of my glorious name. <clears throat> God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name? God did not cast away his people for the glory of his name. I love this story in in 1 Samuel 12, where they choose, they, we want a king to be like the nations. We don't want you to be our unique king. We want to be like them and have a nation. Your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourself a king. But do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. For, I don't know, why shouldn't they be afraid even though they've done all this evil? The Lord will not forsake his people. Why won't he? For goodness sakes, they've just committed treason for the sake of his great name. Now, one of the things I hope you're hearing as I just rattle these texts off is, this is really good news for us. (laughs) This is good news for us that God is acting for his name. Because acting for his name here is the reason he didn't wipe them out. And that occurs over and over again. If God were to look only to us as the ground of our good treatment, we'd be gone. He's looking somewhere else as the foundation for his grace. Not here. God saved Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name. I will defend this city to save it for my own namesake. God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. For the sake of my holy name, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. That's why I'm bringing you back from exile. Jesus, now we're in the New Testament, big shift. Jesus sought the glory of his Father in all that he did. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, like that's my total mandate, the one who seeks the glory, this is Jesus modeling the ideal humanity, I'm seeking the glory of the one who sent me in all that I do. There's no falsehood in him. The mark mark of Jesus' truthfulness is that he did everything for the glory of his Father. 
Jesus told us to do good works so that God gets the glory. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. I'm telling you to do that because it's all about God's glory in your life. Jesus warned that not seeking God's glory makes faith impossible. This text really gripped me years ago. How can you believe, meaning you can't, when you receive glory from one another, I really want you to like me, really want you to praise me, and do not seek the glory that comes from God. If, if your whole life is bent on horizontal people approval, you can't believe in Jesus. You see that? that I mean, this is amazing. How can you believe? So, faith in Jesus is impossible for a heart that loves the glory of man more than the glory of God. There's something about the nature of faith that won't fit with that. It won't work. When, when your heart is not interested in the glory of God, it's not prioritizing the glory of God, you're still blind to the glory of God, and you really love the praise of man, and you fear the disapproval of man. That's the controlling thing in your life. Then faith, just like, that heart has to be changed. That's what the new birth does. Jesus said that the answers to prayer that God would be, that, that he answers prayer that God would be glorified. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus endured his final hours of suffering for God's glory. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come into this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Father, the hour's come. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. So everything in the Gethsemane, everything in the cross, it was all about, oh God, vindicate your great glory in the salvation of sinners now. It's, it's when you soak in these. When I said to you last night that Jonathan Edwards' book, The End for Which God Created the World, was in my top three influential books, this is why. The book is divided into two halves. The first half is just densely philosophical. I just kind of broke my brain trying to read it. The second half of the book is this. I'm just, I'm just doing that. It's just page after page after page after page of Bible verses. And when I was done, I just felt like, have I ever known him? <laughs> where, where have I been all my life in reading the Bible? God gave his son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness. This is probably the most important paragraph in the Bible. If I had to vote, <laughs> it's not up to me, but if I had to vote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So now sin is defined in terms of the glory of God. It means you've exchanged it. God offers his glory to you as the all-satisfying treasure of your life. You look at it and say, no, thank you. I like my iPad, you know, or my new iPhone iPhone 4S. That's my new satisfaction. 
That's what sin is. Sin is the kind of feelings and thoughts and behaviors that come from a heart that has something making it more happy than the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace, praise God, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Okay, get this now. We are sinners. We deserve to perish. God, in his great grace, sends his son to save us. But that's not what this says is the main point. This says he sent him, and this was to show God's righteousness. I am going to vindicate, display, uphold, magnify my righteousness in this event. That's what God says. I'm going to do that for my righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So he needed to demonstrate his righteousness because he had made himself look unrighteous by skipping sins. Okay? So if there's a judge sitting on a bench and criminal after criminal comes to him and he says, you can go, you can go, you can go. Everybody starts saying, whatever happened to justice? This is exactly what we should be saying when we watch God say to David after he rapes Bathsheba and kills Uriah and, and Nathan comes and after David cries a little bit, God says, I've taken away your sin. You can go. What? Surely he will be deposed. Surely he will be killed. Surely he will be in prison. I mean, something's going to happen besides just the death of the illegitimate child. No, he just goes on being king, and he's called a man after God's own heart. What is that? That's unrighteous. That's what that is. God is unrighteous. Unless this paragraph is true. That there came a day when God said, the time has come for me to show why passing over all those sins was not unrighteous. The time has come. And the way I will show that I am righteous is by pouring all of David's murder and rape onto Jesus and yours and yours. It works both ways. Events before, events after, the cross at the middle, and all the sins that Jesus is passing over are dumping on the cross. And God is saying, that's how much I hate sin. That's how much I punish sin. That's how much I sweep. Nothing under the rug. Nothing. Not past or future. If David was justified by faith alone and you're justified by faith alone, there's the reason right there. And I am not an unjust judge. I pay. No sin escapes. And either it gets paid at the cross or it gets paid in hell. And the difference is, are you in Christ so that yours is being paid at the cross? Or are you outside Christ so that yours will have to be paid in your own skin? That's a really important paragraph. And at the heart of it is 
the cross vindicates the glorious righteousness of God. This, when I said this right here, this glory of God is important in defining sin. It's because what happens at the cross is that God shows that his glory is not minimized. It's not He doesn't allow his glory to be trampled like we do every day. We trample his glory every day. We don't um, value the glory of God with all of our hearts. So how in the world can he treat us so well? Look at the sun is shining out there on Minneapolis. He made the sun to rise on the evil and the good this morning. How in the world can he do that towards people like us? And for us, it's because the cross daily has borne all of my shortcomings in glorifying, honoring the glory of God and thus vindicates the value of the glory of God. What, what you should see at the cross is the horror of falling short of his glory and the infinite value of the glory of God. God forgives our sins for his own namesake. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. So do you pray, I wonder, do you pray like that? For your own sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. Now, that's a psalm before the cross. So back to that question about people being saved before the cross and after the cross. Before the cross, they said things like, Lord, if if you were to look to me, In my sin, if you were to count iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And they don't know ultimately how it's going to be all worked out. They just knew something's got to be done. He's going to do it, and my sins are going to be covered. And so they say, for your sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. We don't don't say it merely like that. We say, for Jesus' sake, will you pardon my guilt? Just... He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake becomes Jesus' sake now. Which is why, parents, help me with this. I mean, join me in this. When your kids, when you teach them to pray, and they pray, and at the end they say, In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Which means, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. You say, just take them out to lunch. Take this teenager out to lunch, okay? And say to them, you know, the most important words in any prayer are the words, in the name of Jesus, God let it be. Don't throw it away. Like, bye. We need to teach them that. That is the most sweet, precious, powerful, important word they spoke and they slur it over and throw it away because they they're not thinking. They're not thinking. The only reason I have any right to be in the presence of God is Jesus. The only reason he'll hear me is to Jesus. The only reason I have any claim on an answer to prayer is Jesus. And that's why I'm closing my prayer and saying, it's not because of me. It's not my name, not my goodness, not my merit, nothing here. It's Jesus and his blood and righteousness that I'm asking for this. For his own sake now has become for Jesus' sake. 
Jesus receives us into fellowship for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ, as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. Why did Christ welcome you into his fellowship? For the glory of God. Why should we welcome one another for the glory of God? The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. Jesus said he's going to send the Spirit and he will glorify me for he will take what is mine, declare it to you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life is to make Jesus look good. Really good. Really satisfying. When you get up in the morning and have any good feelings about Jesus, guess who's at work in your life? The Holy Spirit. God instructs us to do everything for his glory. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, when we stand in line to get this phone, my, I, this, this is a huge week for us. This is sweet 16. My daughter's turning 16. I've never, I had four sons. They didn't give a rip about 16 years old, except one reason, driver's license. Talitha has been planning her 16th birthday for a year. She set the table last night, different plate on every time. And she's setting her own table. And, and, and uh, I promised her an iPhone uh, years ago, she didn't have a cell phone. All of her friends had cell phones at age 11, you know? And I said, you get a cell phone at 16. And so you can have the best one, any one you want when you turn 16. I want the 4S on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> so we stood in line for two hours. It was a date. And this is what we talked about. And she tweeted yesterday. I saw it this morning or yesterday. I said, she said, pray with me that I would use this. She's holding it up like this. That I would use this for the glory of God. So I'm going to record that. <laughs> and then, Do you remember you said this right here? And I just mentioned that because it's, it's just, this is real stuff we're talking about. This is not, you know, just there, there's a little spiritual side to your life somewhere. This is pizza and Diet Coke and iPhones and everything, whatever you do, do all to make God look like your treasure, not the iPhone. God tells us to serve in a way that will glorify him. Serve in a way. Whoever serves, let him serve as one um, who serves by the strength which God supplies so that, in order that, in everything God may be glorified. Here's the way I paraphrase that. The giver gets the glory. So I'm called to serve. So I'm downstairs in the prayer room. As we do this, you know, Saturday night, Sunday morning, before I preach, I'm down there. And for half an hour, we're praying. We're praying this. God, help me, help Chuck, help the worship leaders, help everybody that's got a part in the service and the people to serve in the strength that you supply. Not we supply. If we supply it, we'll get the glory. But you supply so that in everything, you get the glory. The, the key to the Christian life is discovering the mystery of how to live by another person's strength. It's very strange. Be strong in the Lord and the strength that he supplies. Another person lives his life in you. Just how do you do that? You do it by faith, by saying, okay, I go now. 
not in reliance on my preparation. The horse is made ready for the day of battle. Oh, yes, all day Friday. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. You say that to yourself, and you shift trust off of your preparation onto the, the Lord in the victory, so that as you're charging into battle, you know one stray arrow, and you're dead. Doesn't matter how much armor you got on. There's a little hole here, 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 here. All God has to do is just right there, and you're gone. The victory depends on the Lord in this hour, not on your preparation. And you shift your faith onto that, and you trust Him. And then when you're done, you thank Him. In that way, God gets the glory. That's why He said said to do it. Jesus will fill us with fruits of righteousness for God's glory. It is my prayer that you be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's asking God to do that. God, you put fruit in their life for your, for your glory. All are under judgment for dishonoring God's glory. They became fools and exchanged the glory of God for immortal, for the glory of the immortal God for images. Herod was struck dead because he did not give God glory when he made that speech in Acts 12. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. How many of our politicians should be struck down daily? And God just in mercy passes over, just passes over it. Either depending on whether they believe or not, filling up a reservoir of grace for them to be thankful for or a reservoir of fire that will be poured out on their head someday because they reject his patience. They're not in hell today. If you're not in hell, it's a good day because everybody should be there, especially people who make speeches and don't give God any glory. That's what Herod did, and that's what most of our leaders do. Jesus is coming again to be glorified by us. So now we're at the end of the age. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day for these reasons. When he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among all. So if you ask, why is Jesus coming back? He's coming back to be glorified. He's coming back to be marveled at. Jesus' ultimate aim for us is that we see and enjoy his glory. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's his final prayer for us. Someday we wouldn't see through a glass darkly anymore, but we would the clouds would be removed, the, the, the mirror would be taken away, and there he is face to face. Even in wrath, God's aim is to make known the wealth of his glory. Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. One of the effects of showing wrath towards those who deserve wrath is to make the vessels of mercy more tremblingly thankful. Because there but for the grace of God go we. 
God's plan is to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When, when Psalm 96 says, declare his glory among the nations, it means get that underway. You've got circles, you've got circles of acquaintances. That's your job. Fill them up with that. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. They may not believe it yet, but it, your goal is to try to so live with your hands and your feet and your mouth as to fill up those pockets of influence wherever you are, starting with your family, your, your friends and your relationships, and, and then out from there, just filling it up with a glorious God, telling people what they don't know. They don't know these things. Or just pointing to this beautiful day that the Lord has given us, and instead of saying, you know, isn't evolution amazing, but rather say, God is awesome, isn't he? Of course, they may say, God is awesome, man. Just nature. I mean, it just came up. The sun came up. It came up because God told it to come up. I don't know if you ever read the rest of Psalm 19 where it says, The heavens are telling the glory of God. Firm declares his handbook, day into day, pours forth speech, night into night, knowledge. And then it gets to that beautiful image where it says, The sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and shouting with joy. Well, I, that's what you should see when you see the sun. It's like, whoa, he's getting married today. I mean, so, something like that is intended, like, God is really glad to do this. This sun is, is joy. And all the people in the world feel this. They know this. They don't like dark, cloudy, dangerous days. They want bright days with cool breeze, warm on the skin. The sun is warm on the skin and the breeze is cool on the skin. You know, that happens a few times in Minnesota, especially in October. And, uh, and we just love it, that awesome combination of the sun is bright and warm and the breeze is cool and clear. And you look downtown, I was walking across the bridge this morning. I got out my phone, you know, I got out my, my old-fashioned iPhone 4. And... And I went to the video and I, I said, Lord, this is what I see every time in October. I just went like this. Across the, I panned the cityscape just to remind myself and took a video of it because I was looking downtown and it was just crystal clear. I mean, I spent three years in Pasadena. I know what not clear means. <laughs> I lived in a soup bowl for three years in Pasadena. Ever since then, I've said, look, I can see the buildings downtown. It's just awesome. I can see the edges. They're sharp. This is lucid like a diamond between me and downtown. And look at these trees. They're almost gone now, but a few of them still have these magnificent. This is like a, a, a bridegroom coming out of his tent. I get married today. I can have sex tonight, legally. <laughs> with the woman I'm going to spend my whole life with. I mean, this is just glorious. That's, that's, isn't that remarkable that he... Everything that happens will redound to God's glory. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And finally, in the new Jerusalem, the glory of God replaces the sun. (laughs) The city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it. For the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the lamb. Therefore, that's 32 texts, I think. Therefore, God's ultimate goal in creation and redemption is to uphold and display his glory for the enjoyment of the redeemed people 
from every people and tribe and language and nation. Or to say it another way, the thesis of this course. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Worship is. Valuing the glory of God is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Now, just a little note here. And a lot of you heard me raise this before because I've got in my file at home at least, I think, five, maybe it's only four, but four or five um, testimonies of people who have really been offended and stumbled over these 32 texts that God is so into his own glory because it makes him sound like a megalomaniac or an egomaniac. And why isn't he? Because unlike all other beings, God is infinitely valuable, infinitely beautiful, and infinitely satisfying. Therefore, when he upholds and displays his glory, he's preserving for us and offering to us the greatest and longest pleasure. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, see, if if I were to spend all of my life trying to get you to praise me and to see my glory, I wouldn't be loving you. I would be distracting you from what can truly satisfy your soul, namely God. But if God spends his whole life attracting you to himself, he's loving you because he's what can satisfy your soul fully and forever. And I I just said in Brazil, I said it in Australia, I mean, and I'll say it to you, if you can offer me something better than full joy that lasts forever, I will stop being a Christian and follow what you offer. Because I feel very safe in saying that, and I don't feel God is the least offended by my saying that. Because I'm saying it because he just told me I'm full and I'm forever. There isn't anything fuller than full or longer than forever. So I have no fear that you're going to come to me and say, I've got something better for you. Like, what are you going to offer me that's better than full and forever? You can't. So I'm, I'm home. I'm finished looking. The search is over. This is full. This is forever. And the search is over And the reason God is not a megalomaniac in constantly saying, I'm great. John Piper, stop looking at your phone. I'm great. That is pure love. If I said that to you, stop looking at your phone. I'm great. That wouldn't be loving. I should be saying, stop looking at your phone. He's great. That's love. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the supreme act of love. You can't copy him in this. So what then is God's love? Divine love labors to enthrall the beloved even at unfathomable cost like the death of Jesus with what is infinitely full and eternally, forever, satisfying. Namely, God. 
This is what is ultimately good about the good news. Christ suffered once to bring us to God, to bring us to full and lasting satisfaction. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so that's what Jesus died to give you. This is the capstone of the good news that we take to the nations. God gave his son to make it possible through faith alone for sinners to be forgiven and justified and transformed so that they could have full and lasting pleasure. All the work of the atonement is going there, namely being with God at his right hand where pleasures are full and forever. That's why he died. That's why he died for the nations. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So here a a huge implication for motivation. These two exhortations... Let the peoples praise you, O God. So praise. That's seeking God's glory, right? Let the peoples praise you. We want the peoples to praise God. And this one, let the nations be glad. So we want them to praise God and we want them to be glad. I'm arguing now those two motivations are one. When the nations praise God, their gladness reaches its consummation. And when the nations are glad in him... He is seen to be praiseworthy. The nations are satisfied in God when they see and savor His glory. And God is most glorified in them when they are most satisfied in Him. So, huge implication for motivation and missions. The motivation of compassion, I want you to be glad. I don't want you to go to hell. I want you to be happy. I'm here for your happiness. (laughs) Charles Simeon used to go around knock on the doors and his his way of doing pastoral care in the community where they didn't go to church, he'd knock on the door and say, hello, I'm the new uh, vicar down at the uh, um, his church, Holy, uh, Holy Trinity, and I'd just like to know, are you happy? <laughs> are you happy? We should ask, are the nations full and eternally happy? The motivation of compassion for the good of hell-bound people and the motivation of passion for the glory of God are both pursued in the same way, namely by seeking the gladness of the nations in all that God is for them in Jesus. The nations escape hell. That's satisfying our compassion for their good. And glorify God. So they escape hell and they glorify God, satisfying our zeal for God's glory with the same act, namely being satisfied with all that God is for them in Christ. Treasuring all that God is for them in Christ gives glory to God and rescues people from hell. If God in Christ becomes the gladness of the nations, then God is glorified in their res- and they are rescued. Our passion for God's glory and our compassion for man's good are both fulfilled. Therefore, we embrace the freedom and joy of a unified heart 
in our motivation to reach the nations, the pursuit of their joy in God and the pursuit of God's glory in them are one. Question or two, and then we'll take a break. Yes. Evangelism is what, by the work of the Holy Spirit, is what changes that rejection. Precisely. Yeah. Yes, you can say it that. The question, going back to Romans 1, is when, when people know God from general revelation, is the reason they, none of them responds because of their innate depravity? The answer to that is yes. That is, we, we are all haters of the truth. We don't love God, and we're guilty for it. We really are guilty. We know we're guilty. Our conscience tells us we don't even live up to what our conscience requires, let alone what God requires, and therefore, at the judgment day, nobody will find fault with God's justice. This is, this is a rock-bottom piece for me because I, I have many questions about many things, but one conviction I come away from the Bible with is that at the judgment day, when people are, you know, the sheep and the goats are separated and you go into eternal punishment, you go into eternal life, at that moment, there will be exquisite justice being done. Nobody will say, I don't deserve to be here. Nobody will ever be able to say that. Nobody will be mistreated. Because depravity is real and it's really blameworthy. And then the question was, so missions then and evangelism is the means by which God uses to overcome that depravity. Which is exactly what God, Jesus said to Paul on the Damascus Road, go, I am sending you to open their eyes that they may move from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness of sins and have an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I'm sending you to open their eyes. I'm sending you to deliver them from darkness. I'm sending you to free them from the power of Satan. That's what the Word of God does. We're, we're going to go there in a, in a few minutes talk about the power of the Word to break the bondage of our human depravity. There isn't any other... It, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation... Nothing else, not the moon, not the sun, not a storm cloud, not any other religion. The gospel is the power of God that breaks this, this horrible darkness that is holding humanity. And that's why we, we have such good news. Maybe one more question. I'll look this direction to see. Oh, over here. Uh, go ahead, yeah. a good question. Why, why are so many of us coming late for me, like age 22, for others later to, to even see good grief? That really is there. It's all over the place. How did I miss it? Or specifically, why does Satan seem to want to keep us from that and let us have, have others? And I mean, given the impact it's had in my life, I would guess that that is the kind of thing he doesn't want to happen. He, I mean, it, it is a massively humbling doctrine. It just puts you 
totally in your place. Like, you're not the center of the universe, Mr. Preacher. And so, get off your high horse and, and humble yourself under a massive hand of God that you may be exalted in due time. So, it's, it's hugely humbling. It tends to... I'll say one more thing about it, and then maybe we should take the break. I wrote, I wrote a letter, just to be real practical. I wrote a letter to one of my sons. This would have been 20 years ago, maybe. Uh, who I felt like he's off to college by himself, um, and, and I felt like his letters were tipping me off that, uh, is he going to church? Is he reading his Bible? Is he praying? Are things getting out of whack here? Because he's a professing believer. He's always been a believer. And, uh, and I wrote him a long letter, and the analogy I used, and, and I think this came to my mind because of this centrality, I said, um, when the sun is in place in the solar system, all the planets do exactly what they're supposed to do. You got Mercury going where it belongs. You got Venus going where it belongs. You got Earth going where it belongs. You got Mars going where it belongs. And little Pluto out there, even though they demoted him, he's doing, he, he's, he's doing, he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. Every, they're not bumping into each other. They're, they're providing whatever they're supposed to do. But if you, if you take the sun with its massive, massive centrality and gravitational glory out of the center, and you put education there, or wife, or health, or mission, or preaching, or money, these things are going to go, and they start banging into each other, because that's what I was seeing in his life. Things weren't, weren't working anymore. They there was problems, problems, problems. And that's, that's what you can expect. When you pull the, the gravitational function of this massive, big, central, glorious God out of where he belongs, things don't go right. Just, the world doesn't make sense. Life doesn't make sense. Marriage doesn't work right. And kids don't work right. Nothing seems to work right because the planets they don't know what to do. They're just all... Because the sun is missing. And so I just said... I just I think all God wants you to do is just make sure the sun, S-U-N, is, is central. Namely, God is supremely, blazingly, powerfully, gravitationally central in your life. And then all the, all the money planets and all the marriage planets and all the education planets, they'll just fly the way they're supposed to, to fly. So that's, a, that's one of the reasons why Satan doesn't want us to see this, this huge centrality.